0: 1 Timothy 4, chapters, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, Paul reminded Timothy of the apostasy that Jesus Christ had foretold before his ascension. To equip him to identify it, and then to deal with it. Chapter 3, verse 16, was a hymn of victory. It was a doctrinal masterpiece. In 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 fact, not just verse 16, but verses 14 through 16. Paul wrote, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write, so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And now here's where the hymn begins. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This was what we believed to be an ancient hymn, very doctrinal, obviously doctrinal, because now it's also scriptural. And so we appreciate it very much. And this is truth that is being taught, as opposed to what Paul will warn Timothy about in verses 1 through 5. The change then is going to occur in chapter 4, verse 1. And it's not really altogether unexpected is it as where, where there is a strong proclamation of the truth there is also often a satanic attack on that truth and Satan perverts the truth think back to the Garden of Eden God told both Adam and apparently Eve as well that there was one tree of the garden that they should not eat from otherwise they will surely die they, uh, they, they will absolutely die as soon as that truth is given. Possibly very soon, uh, very very rapidly later. Now Satan comes up and says, oh, that's not true. Yeah, did God really say that? Oh, you, you won't really die if you eat of that tree. Satan likes to pervert truth. And this is what Paul warns us about here. Opposition to the faith and the struggle to meet it are in Paul's mind as, he's, as he enlarges upon two themes that he introduced in chapter 1. Uh, heresy and Christian ministry. Timothy must be on guard at all times. There would be those who look and sound attractive and also appear to be supportive to biblical truth who were in reality anything but that. And it doesn't just concern Timothy in the first century. There are those today that look attractive, that sound attractive, that have their messages packaged in a way that only Hollywood could do it, but yet they are not supportive of the truth. Their packaging, a lie, I just would editorialize it at this point, to me it's a shame, to me it's a crying shame that Satan almost has a monopoly on attractive packaging. You know, I mean, we ought to be able to package our message well also. It's not a sin to package the Christian message well, and we need to do more of that. We need to utilize our, Christians, our, our Christian brothers and sisters who have the ability to do things like that, and they need to use that giftedness for the glory of God. There is no reason why Christianity should be slopping. There's no reason why Christian cinematography should be sloppy. There's no reason why Christian uh, tracks should be sloppy. I'm talking about not just in their doctoral content, but in their appearance as well. There's no reason for that. We have talent in Christianity. It ought to be used for the glory of God. But Timothy must be on guard at all times. To believe that someone could appear as an angel of light and yet be a messenger of darkness is something that I know... Many of you don't want to believe. Because the the, the better hearts among you assume the best out of everyone. And I'm glad that you do. It's, it's, um, It's lovely that you do. But sometimes it's a dangerous thing that you do. To just assume that everyone who speaks and says that they speak for God is actually speaking the truth without checking it out, without being very careful about the content, to just assume that is dangerous. Now, this is a message that warns specifically Timothy. And, and, and hermeneutically, in, in the tight circle of meaning, this, this is a warning to Timothy and the elders at Ephesus and, and the elders in the ancient world. But when we get out into a broader significance, it's, it's not only a, a warning to people like me, To people like Will and to people like uh, Paul Shockley and and all those who are in ministry, particularly in teaching ministry, it's a warning to you as well. These are called the pastoral epistles, but we said when we began this study that it would contain information that goes way beyond just instruction to pastors. We all have to be careful with what we hear that is purported to be the word of God. And this is not something new. This is something that goes back to ancient times. Just because someone was an early church father doesn't mean that they had it all right. In fact, some of the strangest theology comes from some of the most well-known names in church history. Now, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater just because this particular church father had one aspect of his theology that wasn't right. We don't throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. I'm I'm not implying that at all, but we have to be careful. And so Paul is warning Timothy to be on guard in this passage. Even though we don't want to believe that people will pretend to be telling the truth, even though we don't want to believe that people may intend to tell the truth, but aren't really. There are, there are people that are pretending to tell the truth, and they're pretending on purpose. There are other people that are intending to tell the truth, but aren't doing it out of negligence. Either way, it is a reality that that happens. Do you really believe that, that Satan is going to use the real horses behind of this world to speak his message? Do you really think so? No, he doesn't. I could have been more graphic than that, but I think it, it got your attention. He's not going to use those kind of people. He's not going to use people with very unpleasing personalities to speak his message. He's going to use people that smile all the time when, when they preach. And, or, or when they proclaim their, their messages. He's going to use sweet people. If he used the unsweet people, his message wouldn't be listened to. You know, it seems to be only Christians that use it. Anyway, we'll, go, we'll skip that. But, but, but isn't it strange sometimes, the, the way Satan works? If you're going to tell a lie, you don't do it with an unpleasing personality. People aren't going to believe it just based upon your personality. Of course, there's a message for Christians there, too. We're to speak the truth in love. It's unfortunate that we have such a powerful message, and sometimes it's not spoken in love, and it's rejected by a lost and dying world because they see no love in the one that's speaking the truth. But, you know, Satan is the father of lies, according to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the father of lies, and he does it well. He's no novice. You know, lies to be effective... Typically contain a sliver of truth. Now, just enough truth to throw you off. And effective lies are typically packaged in a form that is attractive. An old maxim says, you can't judge a book by its cover. And that is so true. In verse 4, verse 1 rather, of chapter 4, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times... Some will fall away from the truth or from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So in contrast to this great revelation that Paul has just given, this this Christ hymn that we saw in in chapter 3, verse 16, in contrast to that, false teaching, Paul says, will inevitably arise as time passes. Now, when, when Paul says the Spirit explicitly says, there's much discussion in the literature over what that means, whether Paul was speaking that the Spirit explicitly told him that, or that the Spirit is speaking of previously given revelation that is the Scripture. Either way, this, the Holy Spirit is the one that is telling Paul this, or that is telling us this. Either way, the Holy Spirit is behind this revelation. There are some people both in Paul's day, and we'll find out it's gonna be in our day as well, that that lie. Either purposely or unintentionally. And Paul warns Timothy against this. But they're not just going to lie, they're going to lie with persuasive arguments. And these persuasive arguments are empowered by deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, Satan is not omnipresent. you know what omnipresence means? I hope you do. It means that God's everywhere. God in his being is both imminent. He's, he's both here with us. He's also transcendent, meaning he's within, his, within, he's within his creation, but he's also outside of his creation. Now, the deists believe that he was outside of his creation, but not within his creation. The Pantheist believes that he's within his creation, but not outside of his creation. But actually, God is both. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere we are, and he's also everywhere we're not. But Satan's not. Satan can't be about one place at one time. Now, sometimes we think Satan's after us. And it's possible. If your name's George Bush, he probably is after you. How'd you you like to be him right about now? You know, I have never seen in my lifetime a man attacked in that way. By friend and foe. By friend and foe. And I'm sure that Satan is after that because if Satan can cause the President of the United States to make a decision that is unwise, he affects millions upon millions of people. But Satan can't be everywhere at the same place and at the same time. Now, I imagine he's pretty shifty. I imagine he moves pretty quickly. He could probably be at Washington in breakfast and in Beirut by lunchtime, if not sooner, probably a lot sooner. But he can't be everywhere at once. So Satan has emissaries. How many, we don't know. But I assume it's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them. He's got emissaries, and he assigns these emissaries to individuals and to groups. I would be, frankly, rather insulted if I got to heaven. Of course, I won't be insulted in heaven because I don't think you can be that way. But, but if you could, I would be insulted when I get to heaven to find out that there was not even one satanic emissary that was assigned to us. You know, if there's not, I like to have an explanation for some of the stuff going on, but, but other than that, it, it, you know, hopefully, if the truth is being spoken, then Satan's out there somewhere. Perhaps not him personally, but certainly one of his people. One of his angels. And perhaps, maybe more than one. And I suspect that up at Dallas Seminary, they probably got a whole cadre of them up there. Because, because you see what can happen if, if Satan can affect the men that are training for the ministry. He can shut off ministries even before they get started. If he can affect those that are training the pastors, look how many other people can be affected by that. One seminary professor may teach 30 men that are training for the ministry, and then those 30 men may influence thousands upon thousands. We need to be praying for our seminaries. We need to be praying for a hedge of protection. In the same way, we need to be praying for our church. One of the greatest pleasures that I had during my time in seminary was the time that I had with, uh, uh, with Dr. John Walbert, And it just so happens Paul and I were in a class together with Dr. Walbert. one of the last classes uh, that he taught, at least the last class that he taught of this type. Uh, you were in there, we were in there together, weren't we? Yeah, and it was one of a wonderful experience. It was one of the best experiences I've, I've ever had, to spend a whole semester with John Walbert, Dr. John Walbert, speaking about the theology of Lewis Berry Chafer. It was absolutely phenomenal. But Paul can tell you one of the, some of the best times that we had were when he, we got him off subject and just got him to talking. Weren't those fantastic? And, you, and he, just, he just started pouring out his heart. And one of the things he poured out his heart about was this right here. One of the things he talked about was satanic influence on churches, seminaries, families, pastors' families to, to be specific, but, but everyone's family. And he said, and I I never forget these words, he said, Gentlemen, I would never leave my home in the morning without first praying for my family. Because Satan is going to go after you. He's either going to go after you, and if he can't get you that particular day, he's going to go after your wife. If he can't get her, he's going to go after your son or your daughter or one of your friends. He's going to go after you one way or another. Pray for a hedge of protection from the enemy. And I hope that you pray for that for your own families. I hope you pray for that for this church. I hope you pray for that for me and, and the rest of those who are in leadership at this church. We all need it desperately because while in the future we will have a position that is much higher than the angelic beings, right now uh, one angel going up against one human being that's doing it in the flesh, one believer in the flesh that's not under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the human being is going to get TKO'd uh, probably in the first round. You see, if you go if you go into the fight by yourself, You're almost finished before it starts. Now, if you go into the fight with God on your side, then the demon is finished before he starts. So it seems like a rather reasonable request, a rather reasonable piece of advice that Dr. Walbert gave me, gave Paul, and I'm giving it to you. Pray for your family every single day. Pray for this church before you ever get up, before you ever hit the door, that God the Holy Spirit would provide a hedge of protection from demon influence and demon activity the deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. There's a time factor here, but the Spirit says, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times. Now there's also a lot written about this. What are the latter times? Now Paul obviously expects this to be true in his day. And that is certainly something that we know has happened. It happened, he prays about it when he leaves the church at Ephesus a couple of years before. And now he's giving Timothy instruction in the same church uh, sometime later. So it was surely something that happened in Paul's day and in Timothy's day. But this phrase, latter times, probably has a a more significant meaning than just in Paul's day. There are a couple different philosophies about how the world is going. And they are becoming more and more um, in the forefront Particularly with regard to to philosophy of ministry in different churches, there was a philosophy with regard to the millennium, and that was very popular before World War One. It was called pre-millennialism. I have to say that slowly when I say it. It's called I mean it's called the whole post excuse me postmillennialism. Now postmillennialism said in effect that Jesus Christ is going to come again after the millennium, and so in that particular view the world would be getting better and better and better and better and better and better and finally it would be so good and so wonderful we would achieve millennial status that the lord would come back now there's a another view that is biblical as opposed to the post millennial view and that's called premillennialism premillennialism takes a different view of it premillennial premillennialism says that as time goes on things will tend to get worse, not better. And in the times right before Christ comes back, they will be at their worst, not at their best. Now, those who believe in the power of positive thinking, which one of those two do you think they like the best? The first one. Okay. They don't like this negative stinking thinking. The stinking thinking that things are going to get worse. Problem is, things are going to get worse. And World War I just about shot out of the water those who believed in post-millennialism. Because it sure didn't look like the millennium was being ushered in after that, did it? But there were still a few hangers-on. And those few hangers-on were pretty much swept away with a tsunami that was called World War II. And then they seemed to die out for a while. But if you, if you listen closely, there are some that are starting to sprout up again, are they not? I don't know what these people are doing. They're not watching the same news that I'm watching. They're certainly not going to the same news internet sites that I'm going to. They don't have the strategic information that, <laughs> that I've got. I've got a new website It's going to be fantastic about strategic information about worldwide news events. So there's no telling how, how brilliant and exciting I'm going to be over the next few weeks as I feed you with, this, uh, with these new little nuggets. But, but uh, no, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. All these satanic lies. They're not going to go away. In latter times, as we go down the eschatological road, this is going to get worse, not better. It shouldn't shock us. Now, there's nothing wrong. Here's where a lot of pre-millennialists went wrong, frankly. Because things are going to get worse, some in the past, and this is wrong, some in the past have said, well, the heck with it then. I'm not going to feed anybody in Africa. I'm not going to build a house in Honduras. It's just getting worse worse and worse. There's no need to try to do something like that. Well, that's not the proper application of pre-millennialism. But post-millennialism is not true. And those who try to usher in the kingdom by doing good are exercising futility. Here it says that in latter times, as time goes on, as, the, as, as eschatology marches forward, some will fall away from the faith. Now, the some that are falling away from the faith in the immediate context are people who are communicators of the word of God. Now, falling away from the faith doesn't mean that they're losing their salvation. There are other ways that that word faith can be used, and this is one of those places where the word, the faith, most likely means that which is believed. The body of truth, rather than exercising faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's contextually driven. But what these people are doing contextually is they're falling away from the truth. They're falling away from the body of truth that we call biblical doctrine. And that will happen in increasing intensity as time goes on. But they don't just fall away from the truth. People never do. People never just leave the truth, do they, and go into a, a, a limbo. They leave the truth and go into a lie. And that's what they will do. And the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons are a part of that. Now in verse 2, by means of hypocrisy, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. A hypocrite is one who is not acting consistently with who he is. I've I've told you before, but perhaps some of you weren't here in in, in Greek drama. A hypocrite was was one who was, was an actor. In Greek drama they only had males do all the parts. They didn't they didn't allow any females at least not in the early days. And so males would have to they would hold this big mask up and then they would they would speak a female part. Cindy and I went to a, a Roman amphitheater where some of these plays were were done. Actually it was in southern France in a place called Orange. It's spelled like orange, but it's uh, pronounced Orange. And it was really neat. I had, um, I had her go down to the bottom stage area, and I went all the way up to the top, because I wanted to see if it was true that you could speak in a relatively normal voice and be heard up at the top because of the acoustics. And you can. It was really amazing. But these people would st- stand at the bottom with no, ma- with no voice magnification at all, speak from behind the mask, and project to the entire audience. Now, those who were speaking from behind the mask were called a hypocrites, or a hypocrite. And that's where we get the, the idea of actor from. An actor is someone who is pretending to be something that he or she is not. It uh, makes me wonder why we ask them their opinions about certain really important things. Because their whole life is pretending to be something that they're not. I think that's why they wear the little glasses that don't really have lenses in them, you know, that to make them look intellectual. You know, They want they to they look like a college professor because they think that's a, that would gain them some respect. But that's where we get the idea of, of hypocrisy from. These people are not what they seem to be by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience. Now, I'm no chef, but today, today at lunch my wife had seared tuna. And seared tuna was, was, um, was rapidly heated on the outside, and it, and it saved all the juices on the inside, saved all the flavor in the inside of that particular uh, fish sometimes people also call this is it cauterizing cauterizing where where you where you apply a, a heat i guess to a, a blood vessel and it, it sears it off it, it it holds everything else back closes closes up off the opening and that's what they've done with their consciences their their consciences now have been seared in their own conscience as with the branding iron so this hypocrisy has now become a part of them you know the best way to convince people of a lie is to believe it yourself. Some people can pass a lie detector test. You know why? They convince themselves. They can do this mental mind game that they, and they can convince themselves that what they're saying is actually true. And then they can say whatever they want. And, and that's what Paul means here. These people are good. <laughs> at lying because they've convinced themselves that what is false is true. Now the the two things that are brought up in verse 3 are just examples. These aren't the only things about which false teaching would be be manifested, but these are just two things and these are probably two things that were manifested in the first century. Uh, Later on there will be plenty of other uh, aspects of false teaching. Um, I I hope if you stay home on a Saturday morning uh, and and you've got the knock knock on the door and and you see two, maybe three people at at your door, you you know what I'm talking about. Some of these dear, wonderful folks, these are are some of the people that I think are lying by accident rather than by intent. I I really think they've just been brainwashed. But there's a lot of false theology out there. Now, if you don't believe that, uh, wait wait till your spouse goes to sleep some evening, uh, sneak into the living room and turn on the TV. You don't have to go very far past the five, six, seven, eights. 6, get, get past the 12, 13, get past 13 and you're getting close. Okay? Now if you have one, one of those TVs that will skip over 13 through I don't know how many, uh, you're alright. But if you don't think there's false teaching, just listen. Now listen with keen ears. Now listen with ears that hear. And you'll hear some of the weirdest things, even within the same sermon. You may have contradictory things within the same sermon if you're listening. Carefully, but they, these are there are two things that these people Paul brings up two examples of things that they're going to teach that are hypocritical lies. One is that there would be people that would come by that would forbid marriage, and then there were these same people would also uh, advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. Now these are just two illustrations. But you see, both of these things are legitimate. Who invented marriage? God did. Uh, And for a, a Bible teacher to say that marriage is not legitimate should be pretty easy to spot, shouldn't it? Unless it's cleverly packaged. Now, this, this one I hope would be easy for us to spot. I'm, I'm kind of glad both of these were the illustrations because I, I really don't care where you are in your, your spiritual rock right now. I hope you can you understand that there's nothing wrong with the institution of marriage. God invented it. God ordained it. And as long as it's lived in a way that, that glorifies him and we use his rules and regulations for that union, it's going to be something wonderful and it's going to be a, a testimony to a lost and dying world. He invented it. There's nothing wrong with it. Can it be abused? Of course. Of course it can. But he invented there's nothing inherently wrong with marriage. So it's wrong to forbid marriage. It's not true. Paul said, now listen, if you're in certain types of ministry, maybe it's better not to be married. Because your first ministry is always to your family. And if, if there's issues with the family, then you're going to have to take care of that before you take care of, the, of the, uh, whatever ministry that was. So there, there may be specifics Specific instances, but in general, there's nothing wrong with marriage. There's also nothing wrong with food. Aren't you glad to hear that? (laughs) I am too. There's nothing wrong with food. God created it. Now, food can be abused. I mean, gluttony is a sin, to be sure. But these people say that there are certain foods that you cannot eat and be spiritual. Ever heard that? It's not so. It's not so popular in our day. But it certainly was was popular in a day past. Now, again, remember, these are just two illustrations of people who have left the body of doctrine, the body of truth, and fallen away from that, who have been convinced of the lies because it's been seared in their conscience, and they forbid marriage and abstain from foods. Now, Paul even mentions it here, which God has created. God created these foods, and he created them for our benefit. He created them not only to be consumed but gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Uh, You can't help but think back to manna, the provision that God gave the Jews in the wilderness. That was created to be shared in by those who gratefully acknowledged and believed the truth. In verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with gratitude. Now, Now, verses 4 and 5 sometimes are used to validate the idea of a prayer before a meal. And that's very true. And, you know, we ought to be more thoughtful when we pray before a meal. Sometimes it becomes very routine. Sometimes it's just something to be gotten through so that we can get to the meal. Um, Sometimes it's way too short. Sometimes it's way too long, whoever's praying trying to make a point, you know, while your stomach's growling. But the idea is not the length of the prayer. The idea is the intensity and the sincerity of the prayer. Is it a prayer that's truly expressing gratitude? Whether you're with a group or whether you're by yourself, you know, and and you bow your head to pray either out loud or silently before a meal, is it something that's sincere? Or is it done so quickly that... God can understand what's been said, but nobody else at the table could. Uh, in Jesus' name, Amen. You know that's uh, that, that that's kind of all one word now, isn't it? Almost one syllable now. But but it's true. We should receive what we've been given in terms of nourishment with gratitude. And I think those who receive it with the most gratitude are those who haven't had any in a while. Then you're really grateful for it this is this is not on the par with, with that at all but i i, I have to um, tell you i'm i'm am uh, uh, one of the most picky eaters that you have ever set eyes on uh, my mom spoiled me that way <laughs> everybody else at the table would have one particular thing and she'd say oh honey and i'll make you something else and so so um, that's uh, that's true first time i went to, first time i went to ukraine I, I had a hard time for the first two days finding something I could eat. I was the guest of some people that, that put out this feast in front of me. I've forgotten their names, but they—they just—they were so. They were two older Jewish ladies, and we went over to give them the gospel. Jim Myers and myself. We went over to give them the gospel, but uh, uh, I was hungry when I left because I had to try to pretend to eat. You know, it was about—it was about 48 hours. I hadn't had much to eat, and there's a McDonald's that's right down the street. <laughs> from the school and finally I had to get a translator to go in there with me and Margaret the translator went in because I got to have my, my double cheeseburger plain with nothing on it so even at McDonald's I'm picky I remember she wrote it down she wrote she writes it down for me how to say it but then she said she, she's so sweet I guess you're never going to meet her I, I wish you would you'll meet her in heaven she's one of the dearest people on this planet but, but I doubt she'll ever come to the United States she said she'd go in there with me and she said well she went up and asked the person in Russian or uh, Ukrainian, whatever it was, how do you say double cheeseburger plain? And the person behind the counter said, double cheeseburger plain. <laughs> so I said, I have found a place I can eat. This is it. Now, mind you, no offense to anybody who has a McDonald's franchise, but I don't eat a McDonald's here. You know, I I, I would just, I just would not eat before I would do that just because I, I'm uh, arrogant about that, I guess. but. Over there, I sat down with my double cheeseburger plain, with my Coca-Cola and my French fries. Margaret had already gone back to her place. And I, I thank God with an intensity for that meal that I have never thanked him for before or I'm ashamed to say afterwards. I literally, I'm not joking, I literally missed it up in my eyes for the meal that I had. I was so grateful to eat. Now, that's the way we ought to be praying every time we sit down because you know what? You know what? There's no guarantee you're going to get one later. You know, let, let one well-placed uh, uh, terrorist attack take place in Houston and see how long the food supply lasts. It ain't going to last very long. You know, look at what happened last year when everybody tried to get out of town. You know, I mean, if, if you start bombing this bridge or that bridge, there, the food supply is going to dwindle very quickly. We should be grateful every time we sit down and have a meal said a complaining, oh that what mom made tonight. You know, that, that's we sh- we should be so grateful that we're going to have something that will nourish our body. So that's that's legitimate. It's a legitimate truth to take from this passage, but it's so much more. You see, Paul also is speaking about marriage here. It's also legitimate to thank God every single day for the institution of marriage and for one's own individual marriage. Just like it's legitimate to thank him every time you sit down for a meal, for that particular meal. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Now, that's not, that's not talking only specifically about the meal. It's, it's talking about what had been um, mentioned in verse 3. It's, it's speaking about both marriage and abstaining from food, and so the context is actually broader. There should be a general thanksgiving that we uh, that we engage in for everything that we have you know our health is one thing that, that it's it's axiomatic we don't thank god for it until it starts hurting you know you, you, no, i'm not thanking god today that my left ankle is not hurting but there was a time in the past where i was praying fervently that it would quit hurting as bad as it was you see, we, we just forget and um neglect is the is the parent of ingratitude and it typically works that way Everything created by God is good. Now, this doesn't mean that, that uh, everything created by God is, is good to consume. When we look at it in a broader uh, in a broader way, we can see that that uh, there's more meaning to that than than just uh, than just this. Um, for example, marijuana was created by God as well, and I ain't quite figured out the usage yet. Maybe there's some medical uses, but it wasn't used to to become inebriated with. You you can take something that's good and then turn it into something that's bad. You can take something that's a a very legitimate food and eat too much of it in gluttony, and it turns into something bad. So this is not an excuse to to eat whatever you want, Uh, but what God created is good. It should not be rejected. This also has Mosaic Law overtones to it. There were those who were saying, we can't eat this or that because it's uh, it's inherently bad. No, God created it, and it is it is good. Now, what, what is happening here is that uh, these original errorists, these original false teachers, had as a great part of their original error a, a heresy that is called asceticism. And that means asceticism is... Is, uh, is something that places uh, certain restrictions that we may put on the body as spiritual. You know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to be spiritual so I'm not going to do this list of things with regard to these things that I eat or these things that I, uh, that I do. And um, advocates of asceticism are still here with us today. Sometimes people confuse asceticism and legalism, they are cousins. But but the ascetic is going to be so uh, overly consumed with the body that uh, the soul is neglected. Now we can do the opposite too, can't we? We can we can be so consumed with the soul that the body's neglected. And a lot of Christians have a problem with that. A lot of Christians will say, "Listen, uh, this is not me. Uh, my soul is just a prisoner in this body. The quicker it gets released, the better." Well, That's not true. That's not Christian theology. That's, if I'm not mistaken, Plato's theology. Plato had the idea that the soul was just imprisoned in the body, and as soon as we could get rid of this body, we would be much better off. The Christian view is that the body is a partner of the soul. The body is the place where the soul is is the vehicle through which the soul works to do God's work. And so while we're not aesthetics, we're not, we're not placing all of our attention on the body. We don't neglect the body either. And we should do the things that are necessary to maintain relative good health. We shouldn't be consumed with it. There's such a fine line that people walk. We should have a balanced view about it. But it's perfectly legitimate for Christians to exercise. It's perfectly legitimate for Christians to take vitamins. It's perfectly legitimate for you to eat well. But what is illegitimate is when that becomes the the vehicle through which you intend to achieve spirituality. See, that's the difference. There's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. I can't buy it, but there's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. Uh, Perhaps that's that's what your doctor has prescribed for you for good health. But being a vegetarian doesn't make you more spiritual. And that's where some people have gone wrong. Uh, Advocates of asceticism are still with us today. It's just like Paul wrote that they would be. Roman Catholicism has a lot of uh, asceticism in it. Seventh-day Adventism has a lot of asceticism in it. And actually there are many ascetics within mainstream denominations even with us today, although the denomination itself is not officially ascetic. Uh, one interesting side note that you may not be aware of, I'll tell you as we begin to wrap this up tonight, but the modern concept of cereal food originated in the vegetarian beliefs of the American Seventh-day Adventists, who in the 1860s formed the Western Health Reform Institute, later named the Battle Creek Sanitarium, starting to ring a bell, in Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, The entrepreneurial possibilities of the ground, thin-baked cereal dough, served to the sanitarium's patients inspired two men, One fellow by the name of C.W. Post, and another by the name of W.K. Kellogg, each to found his own business. In the late 20th century, now they weren't Seventh-day Adventists, they just saw it. But in the late 20th century, the ready-to-eat breakfast cereal industry sold the equivalent of several billion bowls of cereal to Americans, having far surpassed the market for the traditional hot cereals from rolled oatmeal and enriched wheat. So if you like breakfast cereal, thank an ascetic, but don't follow their example. It's wrong. And remember, there will always be those who look and sound attractive and appear to be supportive to biblical truth who are, in reality, anything but that. We are all called upon, not just the pastors, surely the pastors and church leadership, but you're called upon as well to be on guard for wolves in sheep's clothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this warning that the Apostle Paul gave us so long ago, but that is so pertinent even now. Father, we don't know if we're in the last part of the latter times, or in the middle of it, or somewhere in between, but Father, it would seem as though apostasy, the falling away from the truth, is very rampant in our day. Father, I do pray that you would protect us from it. Help us not to, to develop a, a hyper-critical spirit, a hyper-judgmental spirit, but help us to listen to things that we're told with ears that hear. Help us to have a, a solid grid through which we can run these things through. Help us to be under the ministry consistently of the Holy Spirit so that we might be able to determine truth from falsehood and that we might be rescued from the doctrines of demons as a result. And we'll ask it all, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.